Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, Would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, March 10th, 2011. Tim Challey's got a hold of uh, an advanced reading copy of Rob Bell's book. <laughs> Details coming. I'm really looking forward to reading this one on the air. Yeah, I told you we were going to get this all buttoned up long before um, the book came out. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and helping you to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Uh, discernment work is done via actually listening to what people say and then opening up a Bible and comparing that with what the Bible teaches, what God has revealed. And you'll notice that the greater part of discernment then requires you to know what God's Word actually believes, what it teaches, what has been revealed there. In other words, the less you know of God's Word, the more susceptible you are to false doctrine. It's... it's you know, I I always remember when I used to work in the corporate world, we used to have uh, consultants come in, and you know, a consultant, you know, he'd put up. It looked like one of those things called Punnett squares uh, when you when you're trying to figure out the the DNA. You know, and you got like a, a, a dominant chromosome and a and a and what's the opposite of dominant? Anyway, you know what I'm saying. You, you, you and uh, and so the idea there is that you can try to figure out, you know. You know, if if hair is going to be brown or if there's going to be blue eyes or what the chances of uh, anyway, consultants, business consultants, they like using something that looks like a Punnett square. And what they basically do is, you know, they they put things into quadrants and try to show that that there's you know inverse relationships to certain things. Okay, so uh, so and or you see a slope, you know, that goes up, you know, starts at zero and it and it climbs up at like a ninety degree angle. The idea here is is that I I think a case could be made that um. The more you study and read and learn and correctly understand God's Word, the less susceptible you become to false doctrine. Now, you're a human being, and that also means that you're capable of being deceived. But uh, that being said, I I don't want to dismiss dismiss that, but the idea is this, is that um, study of God's Word— and you know, and reading it, knowing that what we have in God's Word is what God has revealed about Himself, 
Uh, the Bible's about Jesus. That's really, truly who it's about. You uh, disagree with me? Take that problem up with Jesus, because he's the one who pointed out the fact that it's the Scriptures that actually bear witness about him. And one of the things I was uh, commenting on, well, commenting privately, I was in a private conversation uh, earlier this week, and when I was talking with somebody about the um, the passage in the Scripture where Jesus is tempted by Satan in the wilderness. And um, one of the things that I, I, I strongly remember uh, when I was first learning the Bible and reading that passage where Jesus was tempted by the devil in the wilderness, and somebody was had pointed out to me the fact that the devil was quoting Scripture against Jesus to, te- to tempt him, and he was twisting God's Word. Um, I remember distinctly thinking, Okay, why did Je- why did Satan quote that passage to Jesus? Because you know, if you go back and you read the the passages that Satan quotes to Jesus, um, it, it isn't always easily readily clear on the surface that those passages are about Jesus. Uh, but uh, Satan sure did figure that one out pretty quick. Um, yeah, in in fact, I'm pretty convinced that um, Satan is is um, he studies the scriptures really well. Um, and so the idea then is is that. Yeah, you, you as you ground yourself in God's word, the less susceptible you become to the blowing winds of doctrine that you know that you are know, running through the church right now in, in gale force, hurricane force winds. Uh, yeah, you need to be grounded in God's word, plain and simple. So the idea here is, as you listen to the program, you're going to become more familiar with how discernment works because you'll see that when I go, whoa, 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 what that person said doesn't make any sense. Let's compare what they've said to the Word of God. Or when I take a pass, you know, when somebody rips a verse out of context and then teaches you, oh, and here's what God says, and they, and they rip a verse out of context and go, and see, this is what God's Word says here. And then, and then you go, well, that doesn't sound right. You go and put it back in context, and it, yeah, it doesn't work. That, so that's really what this is all about. And that requires you to listen. It requires you to think. It requires you to go, ah, ha, 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 That's what God's Word says. Yeah, because here's the ultimate thing. It doesn't matter what I say God's like. It doesn't matter what Rob Bell says God's like. It doesn't matter what Brian McLaren says he's like or Rick Warren or even Michael Horton or C.J. Mahaney or Albert Muller. Muller, what it really boils down to is what has God revealed about himself? So when uh, when Michael Horton, uh, Albert Muller, and those guys say, and it's God's will for this X, Y, or Z, or God is like this X, Y, or Z, the next thing that comes out of their mouth had better not be something they've invented inside of their mind because if that's the case— yeah, they'd be lying to you. But, you know, see, the thing is, is that, the, you know, the Michael Hortons, the C.J. Mahaney's, the Albert Mullers and those guys, they don't they don't engage in a lot of Bible twisting. They're actually consciously trying to be faithful to the biblical text. And so, uh, yeah, you, you understand what I'm saying. <sighs> okay, now let's talk about what we're going to talk about on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. I've got uh, two emails I'm going to read, one from Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley. He has uh, chimed in regarding the so-called Bridger thing, and he's actually sent me a historical factoid. Now, if you are a regular listener to Fighting for the Faith, then you know that Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley commands my deepest respect and gratitude. I have just a profound, profound sense of deep respect and gratitude for Pastor Charmley, uh, primarily because when you listen to this man's sermon, his sermons, he placards the shed blood of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. Ha, 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 ha. Okay, so first and foremost, Pastor Charmley is a herald 
of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he is a fantastic herald of the gospel of Jesus Christ, one whom I, I you know, the, the church should consider him to be one of, one of those faithful men that God has given us as a gift. Secondly, Pastor Charmley, um, let's just say that he's no slouch. Um, I was uh, video chatting with him recently uh, on Skype, and uh, and he was in his study, and um, he has more books than I do. And I, I told him that he was he, that he probably cheated. And the the reason I say that is because he probably started reading like theology books when he was two years old and been collecting them ever since. And you know, and his father is actually a world renowned historian too. So you know, <clears throat> so <laughs> in other words, uh, when when Pastor Charmley speaks, it's like E. F. Hutton. People go, oh, they got to listen, you know. And so uh, he sent me an email, and um, I, you got to tell you, um. He has given me some disturbing—I'm <laughs> saying that tongue-in-cheek. He sent me some very disturbing news about um, uh, a, a very famous uh, preacher of the gospel um, in England uh, during the 19th century whom he has discovered is a bridger. Yeah, yeah it's, it's just sad. Just uh, it's, it's true. <laughs> so I, I, it's a joke, kind of. But you, you get what I'm saying. You'll, you'll see what I'm saying when I read his email. And then I've got uh, somebody on my Facebook wall pointed out a good point that I want to bring forward here and let you all hear about. And, um, and you know, we'll kind of just go from there. And, uh, oh, yeah, uh, after, the, after we do that, we're going to uh, spend some time looking at Tim Challey's review of Rob Bell's book. And then, time permitting, we're going to uh, read uh, uh, Doing Away with Hell Part 2 by Dr. Albert Muller. And then for our sermon review today, we are going to be listening to a fantastic debate uh, by Dr. Walter Martin. And the name of it is The Resurrection Debate with Dr. Dale Miller, uh, you know, some kind of a liberal dude. And don't know when this was actually, when the debate actually occurred, but it's a fantastic debate, a fantastic debate on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Did Jesus Christ rise bodily from the dead? Oh, and also, uh, I'm going to also throw in a, a, an extra Patricia King update this week you know, before the sermon review. Oh, man, you got to see this one. The name of it is Awaken Your Dreams, and I actually think after watching this one that Patricia King doesn't really believe a word that she says. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, I, in fact, this is one of those videos I'm going to actually have you go and take a look at because I want you to see what I'm seeing in this video because, yeah, well, we'll talk about that when the time comes. So uh, without any uh, further ado, I think we got to get on to our uh, email here. And here's our email music. Yeah, I want everybody to know that this is not, you know, I love this email music intro, and I just, because I video conferenced a few times with Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley, I can't see him typing like this. I, I can't force my brain to see that. Maybe in some kind of a sick and twisted Monty Python sketch, but... <laughs> Okay, Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley writes, and I'm not going to tell you the name of the of the subject line for this email because I would give away the punchline. Okay, now let, Pastor Charmley is going to describe two different people in this email. One is somebody who's doctrinally compromised. This would be the first person. The second person he's going to describe 
is a very famous 19th century Reformed Baptist pastor. And according to Pastor Charmley, what he's dug up as he was reading a book by this famous 19th century Reformed Baptist pastor from the UK is that um, if um, the uh, the <clears throat> the definition of Bridger that's being kicked around out there is true, then we have no choice but to come to the conclusion that this particular well-respected, well, well, well-respected, well-like, often-quoted Reformed Baptist pastor from uh, the UK in the 19th century was none other than a Bridger himself. I, yeah, it's, well, it's true. <clears throat> Let me read Pastor Charmley's email so that you see what I'm saying here. Here here we go. Okay, okay. Minister number one is is the bad guy, okay? This is the guy who's compromised. And listen what Pastor Charmley writes about him. He says, there is a minister, a middle-aged man in his 40s, so he's no longer young and impressionable, who is something of a thought leader in certain circles, determined to move evangelicalism from the historic confessions. Yikes. This man is the pastor of a large and influential church. He, he has said of, of a ritualistic movement, many of whose leaders have become Roman Catholics, quote, the blessing of God was in it. We did not see it, and in any form they did not understand. This man, well, wow, he, so he, these, there's a whole bunch of people who actually left for Roman Catholicism, and he thought that it was the will of God? Whoa. All right, he says, this man calls for the idea of eternal punishment of the impenitent, of the impenitent to be abandoned. He, so is this like the Rob Bell of uh, Great Britain in the uh, 19th century? All right, so this man calls for the idea of eternal punishment of the impenitent to be abandoned? And he teaches conditional immortality in its place. Yikes. He has hinted that he favors some sort of inclusivism. Moreover, this man is one of the leading men responsible for a theological college, which has held a series of summer schools that have been widely criticized for the view of the Bible taught there. The principal of this college has denied that God needs to be propitiated, and this pastor of whom we speak defends that principle. Whoa, okay, so um, right off the bat, we've got a problem, okay? This first guy sounds like, uh, sounds a lot like a lot of today's doctrinal compromisers out there who are not clearly calling for sound biblical doctrine. <clears throat> second guy. Now, here, we, the second guy is a leading Reformed Baptist pastor, a man who is the pastor of a large church, the president of a theological college of his own founding, and the head of a dozen or more institutions. He writes in a book. So, okay, he's an author, too. So we got a Reformed Baptist pastor who is a pastor of a large congregation, uh, president of a theological college that he founded, and he's um, also the head of a dozen or more institutions, and he's written a book in which he says of the pastor that we'd been talking about earlier, quote, "...among modern theologians there are few who rank as highly as this man. Daring and bold in thought, yet he is, for the most part, warmly on the side of orthodoxy." His works command the appreciation of cultured minds. Okay. Now remember, the man who is being warmly commended by this very famous Baptist theologian denies eternal punishment, says nice things about men whose doctrine is basically Roman Catholic, 
and promotes a rather liberal theological college. So who? So is this? Is, is the man who wrote this a bridger? That's the question. So um, that, that so that's the evidence that he's uh, dug up. He, we've got a we got a guy who. The the first guy is obviously theologically compromised. The second guy isn't, but he wrote something, speak you know, in really kind of talking warm and favorably about the first guy, and so Pastor Charmley asked the question: So is the man who wrote this statement, this nice statement about the other guy, the one who's theologically compromised, is he a bridger? Well, if he is, then Charles Spurgeon is a bridger. <laughs> there you go, folks. I, well, Pastor Charmley, what are we going to do here? I, we better warn the church. I mean, anybody who would link arms with, um, with this guy, who's obviously theologically compromised, he needs to be warned against. And any of you out there who are not practicing tertiary uh, separation... You know, in fact, I I, I got to get uh, Phil Johnson on the line. I wonder if I can pull him up on iChat. Um, I got to let him know. I mean, if if this is true, uh, then uh, we've got to stop the pyromaniacs blog, the pyromaniacs blog from having their their Spurgeon quotes being put up there every week. No, oh, they can't be doing that. In fact, we've got to warn the church. We must warn the church about Charles Spurgeon. He's a bridger. Right? I mean, this isn't just him taking a photograph with somebody who's theologically compromised. No! He actually said of him that, wow, let me read a little bit more of this. So Pastor Charmley is writing. He says, if this is true, then Charles Spurgeon is a bridger. I have lightly modernized the quotation, but the original quote reads, so here's the original quote from uh, Charles Spurgeon. Among modern divines, few rank so highly as Mr. Dale. Daring and bold in thought, and yet, for the most part, warmly on the side of orthodoxy, his works command the appreciation of cultured minds. This was uh, written by Charles Spurgeon of uh, Mr. Dale, who, by the way, is Mr. Dale. He is R.W. Dale of Birmingham, England. And it was this uh, quote is from Preaching and Preachers, which was uh, published by Passmore and Alabaster in the year 1885, and you can find it on page one hundred and eighty-six. <sighs> so, um, Pastor Charmley continues. This is about a month ago. I was at a pastors' conference at which one of my fellow delegates described Dale as a liberal the- in theology. Now, that may be going a little. That may be going too far, or that's going too far. I think Spurgeon's actually right. Dale is mostly orthodox, just a bit wobbly in places. But there you have it. Spurgeon is a bridger. <laughs> So yeah, we've got to warn. We got to warn people, folks. We've got to warn people. Charles Spurgeon said something kind of somebody who's theologically wobbly. This has got. This cannot be permitted. We have got to warn the church. In fact, I, I'm going to have to let uh, Phil Johnson of the Pyromaniacs blog know that if he doesn't take down immediately all of the Spurgeon quotes and warn the church about Spurgeon, that I, I'm going to have to defriend him on uh, on Facebook. And uh, stop following him on Twitter. I, this is terrible, terrible, terrible. 
<clears throat> the point I'm making here, folks, is that the term bridger, as I've said before, it's not a biblical term. It's not even a biblical concept. It's really nothing more than the old guilt-by-association logical fallacy dressed up in a brand-new, shiny uh, name. That's all it is. It's you know, you remember uh, you know it, y'all ever seen how they repackage things? I mean, the Coca Cola bottles that we have nowadays, or the Coca Cola cans, don't quite look the same as what they had. I mean, Cheetos. I mean, they've got a brand new look. It's same Cheetos, just a different package. That's what's going on. Bridger, it's just a new package on the same tired old logical fallacy known as guilt by association. And if you're consistent and you believe that Bridgers must be warned against. Keep in mind, then you have a responsibility to warn the body of Christ about Charles Spurgeon. Oh, man. All right. uh, One more email, and I've got to pull this up on my Facebook wall. What did I do with my Facebook wall? Here it is. Michael from Denver writes, um, he says, um, he says, since Ingrid Schleter took it upon herself to issue a warning about Dr. Michael Horton, that tells me that she actually believes that Dr. Horton is a threat and a danger to the body of Christ. And uh, here's what he says. He says, no one issues a warning unless one believes there's a real danger and a real threat. And he says, that is a serious charge. But the only evidence offered by her to justify this warning was an out-of-context photograph taken nine months ago. I cannot believe that more people are not outraged by the fact that the only evidence Ingrid believes is needed or necessary to make to take a bold defender of the gospel and turn him into a threat and a danger to the body of Christ is one out-of-context photo. He says, in fact, um, issuing a warning is a big deal. On Chris's program on March 4th, uh, in the March 4th episode, Chris played audio of Ingrid repeatedly saying that anyone who links arms with Rick Warren must be warned about. That means that Ingrid truly believes that Dr. Michael Horton is a danger and a threat to the church. I do not have the words to properly express how utterly outraged I am by that. I have been an avid listener to the White Horse Inn for almost 12 years. I've read almost every book written by Dr. Horton and have profoundly grown in my understanding of the scriptures through Dr. Horton's work. And to think that all of that is to be brushed aside and I'm going to be warned about Dr. Horton and led to believe that he's a threat and a danger to the body of Christ because Ingrid posted an out-of-context photograph on her blog? You have got to be kidding me. How could Anyone stand by Ingrid and defend her smearing of Dr. Horton's work and reputation and his ministry, that's beyond me. He says, and he says, I'm beyond incensed. Uh, Michael, I, yeah, I, that's, I'm exactly with you. That's exactly why I decided to take this topic on and to take such the, the hard line that I have taken. But uh, thank you for your feedback. I agree with you. It, it, you're right. I mean, Ingrid has made it clear that anybody who associates in any way with uh, Rick Warren must be warned against. But here's the deal. Uh, in Hawaii, you know, on the uh, on the Hawaiian Islands, they have the Pacific Tsunami Warning Center, right? Um, the Pacific Tsunami Warning Center doesn't issue warnings unless they actually believe that there's a real threat. Okay? It's not like, you know, every day, oh, whoop, tsunami! Yeah. Oh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> no, 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 no. There really wasn't. We were just seeing if you were awake. Oh, no, tsunami! Ah! 
Uh, oh, sorry, sorry, we were joking. <laughs> yeah. No, the only time the Pacific Tsunami Warning Center actually issues tsunami warnings is when they believe that there's an actual, real threat of a tsunami. In the same way, those who are doing discernment work and discernment ministry, they should never, ever issue a warning to the body of Christ about a teacher unless there actually is a real threat and real danger to the body of Christ. To issue a warning, say anybody who links arms with Rick Warren must be warned about, is to say that anybody who is even remotely associated with Rick Warren in any way whatsoever, regardless of what they say to him or whatever, has to be warned about, that means that all you have to do is actually be in the presence of Rick Warren, and poof, you then become a threat to the body of Christ. You know, it doesn't work that way. Let me, let me play you her, uh, her, her quote again. Here we go. Warren is a deceiver. He is a false teacher. And anyone who links arms with Rick Warren must also be warned about. So there you ha- yeah, So anyone who links arms with Rick Warren must be warned about. That means anybody who links arms with Rick Warren must is, is automatically, without question, uh, without ability to even challenge it, considered to be a threat and a danger to the body of Christ. Otherwise, they there would be no warning issued. Let me let me play it again. Let me it's play. Having an increasing and growing influence, using some key people in key places, whether they be bloggers or authors or Bible teachers that are nationally known and trusted, they don't say anything themselves that's heretical or heterodox. So you cannot finger anything that they have said themselves, but they are allowing themselves to become a bridge, a bridge between biblical Christianity and the apostate false teachers within evangelicalism, the wolves that are already here, the ravening wolves that uh, Paul warns about in Acts chapter 20. And so that's why bridgers, I call them bridgers, because whether they know it or whether they are unwittingly being used of the enemy, the fact is if you're serving as a bridge between biblical Christianity and the new spirituality that's emerging, you should be warned about. There you go. So if she determines you're a bridger, doesn't matter what you believe, teach, and confess. Doesn't matter if you defend the gospel. You are automatically a danger and a threat to the body of Christ. And we've got to warn the church about the danger that you pose to the body of Christ. Yeah. <laughs> um, right, yeah. Um, if uh, Michael Horton is a danger and a threat to the body of Christ that we must warn people about, then I'm a skinny, skinny young man who actually can sing really well. That's all I have to say about this. So, moving along. Great points. Thank you, Pastor Charmley, and thank you to Michael in Denver. Um, Moving along here. I think this is the first video that I've ever strongly recommend that I want you to watch from Patricia King. Yeah, that's that means we have a Patricia King update coming here. Bling. All right, here's the deal. Um, there's a there's a very very good 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 reason why I want you to see this. So if you have access to a computer, I know some of you are watching on your iPods or you're listening on your MP3 player or you're, you're you know, make a note to yourself. Right, self 
Go to xpmedia.com and look for the video entitled Awaken Your Dreams. Awaken Your Dreams. Because the reason why I want you to see this is because this is the first video that I have seen Patricia King make that makes me think that there's just no way she believes any of the nonsense that she says. And um, and before I play it, so, so that you understand the context of this, uh, I want to play a portion of a song for you before I, pl- I start playing the video. Uh, those of you who grew up in the 80s, you all remember the band Mr. Mr.? Um, they were popular for just a brief amount of time. They had two hits, Kyrie and Broken Wings. Let me, uh, trust me, there's a reason for this. Let me play for you this, the opening portion of the uh, Mr. Mr. song, Broken Wings. Here, Here we go. Trust me, we're gonna work. There's something coming up. Just oh, 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 just singing along, doing the white man overbite. Hang on, here it comes. Take these broken wings and learn to fly again. Learn to live so free. When we hear the voices sing, the book of love will open up and let us in. Take these broken. All right, there. Okay, so that's how I'm going to play it. Okay, so you got the song in your head. Take these broken wings. Now take the word wings and turn it into dreams. How would the song go? Take these broken dreams and learn to, I don't know, dream again. Yeah, that, that, that that's all I want you to hear because I'm convinced that this particular video, I could be wrong. But that's the first thing that came to my mind is that Patricia King, when she was heading into the studio, she was listening to Mr. Mister and thought, oh, this would be a great idea for a video idea you know, for my uh, extreme prophetic uh, website. So here is Patricia King, and the name of this video is Awaken Your Dreams, and listen to this opening sentence and tell me if it doesn't sound suspiciously like the Mr. Mister song. Hey, listen, listen. I want to minister to those of you who have crushed and broken dreams and you don't feel that you can rise up and dream again. <laughs> now, <laughs> okay, let me collect myself. Okay, the reason I want you to go and look at this video. Okay, xpmedia.com. Look for the video entitled Awaken Your Dreams because she cracks. Okay, y- y'all have... Y- y- what do they call it when somebody is on stage and, and they – oh, they break character. She's – I am not kidding. You've got to see this. She breaks character. She smirks right after she said that, and she smirks several times through this video. I don't think she believes any of this, and it sounds suspiciously like just a modified version of take 
these broken wings. I, 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 hang on a second. Let me, let me play this again, and we'll play a little bit more as we listen to her about awakening your dreams. Here we go. I want to minister to those of you who have crushed and broken dreams, and you don't feel that you can rise up and dream again. You know, we have to allow the failures of the past to prepare a better path for us in the future. Yes, yes. Oh, yeah. All right. If we live in the pain and the failure of the past or the devastations, the disappointments, we'll have a belief system that says nothing can, nothing good can happen. Yeah, that's terrible. And it's an ungodly belief. Yeah. Because in Jesus, all things are possible, only belief. And I want to encourage you to get up. Someone that is watching this clip right mm-hmm. now yeah. is so shattered. Yeah. She did it again. I am. She broke a character again. I am not lying. Well, I could. I, maybe I'm not seeing it right, but I, I'm just telling you. It looks like she's breaking character. She just smirked again. <sighs> we continue. So shattered because of something that just happened, and yeah. you're devastated. You had put all your eggs in one basket, right? And you believed the best you could, and it went bad. And I don't yeah. understand myself why everything went bad. I don't understand that, but I know one thing: is uh-huh. that God wants you to dream again. God wants you to rise up and dream. Yeah. He really does. You did it again. I'm. Uh, mm. <laughs> I. <laughs> I could be wrong, okay? I could totally be wrong on this. Take a look at the video and tell me what you think. Tell me if you don't think she's, like, totally breaking character here. The- <laughs> oh, man. Oh, I knew she was a charlatan. I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. Anyway, we're up on our first break. If you would like to uh, email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. ears are scratched here you're listening to fighting for the faith you're listening to pirate christian radio we'll be taking your false doctrine now You're listening to the Emergence Sports Network here on Pirate Christian Radio. You've tuned in just in time to catch today's Emergence Ball match between the Pomo Bombers and the Majestic Mystics. Today's match is proudly brought to you by Rex Quando's Bible Pants. There's the buzzer, and they're off. McLaren dribbles a pigskin down to first base, takes out his putter, and... Whoa! Jones checks McLaren against the boards, and then passes to Paget in left field. 
But wait, Booz Weber is charging from the 10-yard line, and she slam-dunks from the foul line. That's a birdie. The crowd is going wild. When was the last time you saw something like that? I don't think I've ever seen anything like this. Okay, play is resuming. There's Rollins. He serves to Bell. Bell snatches the snitch, and then Hail Mary passes to McLaren. McLaren is in the end zone. Oh, and he slaps it back to third base. Tickle grabs her wicket and then punts one out into center court. It looks like Jones and Padgett are double-teaming Bowles Weber. He doesn't have a shot, so she slices one off into the rough. McLaren is there to make the safety, but Padgett grabs McLaren's face mask and then throws down to second base. What a brilliant save that was. Jones takes out his driver, then sends one out to midfield. Tickle headbutts the ball and then sends it back to McLaren. He vaults over the pummel horse. Oh, and he sticks the landing! Unfortunately, the degree of difficulty wasn't that high, but McLaren racked up seven brownie points. Tickle sets up for the kickoff. But wait, Jones is trying to steal third base. Tickle slap shots the ball back to Bulls Weber, but Jones is safe! He's safe! That means it's going to be third down with 44 meters to the pin. Looks like this match is going to go into sudden death. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Warning, there is no category known as Bridger. I've said it before, I'll say it again. Gotta look out for that Charles Hadley Spurgeon. He was a Bridger. (laughs) Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. And you can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. And when you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code four. Six zero three eight. All right, we've got an official Rob Bell update, which requires me to play our Rob Bell music. Here, here we go.
many special people change? How many lives are living strange? Where were you while we were getting high? Slowly walking down the hall, faster than a cannonball. Where were you while we were getting high? That's right. Drops like stars and champagne supernovas. We've got an update on Rob Bell's book, and it comes from no less of a respected source than Tim Challies. Uh, Mr. Book Reviewer Extraordinaire on the Internet has actually come across a full-blown reader's edition of the, um, well, pre uh, what is exact? I forget the name for it. It was a pre-release reader's edition of the book, um, the book Love Wins. And so I'm going to be reading for you what Tim Challies tells us about this. And uh, and believe me when I tell you, Tim Challies, he takes his time to carefully document the things that he's going to say. And so with that, I'm going to read from Tim Challies' blog. The name of the blog entry is Love Wins, a review of Rob Bell's new book. Says Challies, questions matter. They can help you to grow deeper in your knowledge of the truth and your love for God, especially when you're dealing with the harder doctrines of the Christian faith. But questions can also be used to obscure the truth. They can be used to lead away just as easily as they can be used to lead toward. Ask Eve. Enter Rob Bell, a man who has spent much of the last seven years asking questions in his sometimes thought-provoking and often frustrating fashion. And when he's done asking, no matter what what answers he puts forward, it seems we're only left with more questions. This trend continues in his new book, Love Wins, a book about heaven, hell, and the fate of every person who ever lived, where Bell poses what might be his most controversial question yet. Does a loving God really send people to hell for all eternity? The questions you probably want answered as you read this review are these. Is it true that Rob Bell teaches that hell doesn't exist? Is it true that Rob Bell believes no one goes to hell? Well, you'll just need to keep reading because, frankly, the answers aren't that easy to come by. And what does that tell you? You think Jesus was an obscure teacher when it came to the things that he taught? I think Jesus was pretty clear. In fact, if you want to know what Jesus taught about the afterlife, here's what I strongly recommend you do. Because Jesus isn't unclear about these things at all. When you're done reading what Jesus actually taught on the subject, you you won't have Jesus' ideas won't leave you going, hey, I wonder what he meant. Here's what I want you to do. Grab your Bible. You need about an hour and 15 to 20 minutes. You need a Bible. You need a pad of paper and a pen or a pencil and a quiet place to read. If you like classical music, great. It helps enhance the experience, but that's kind of not the point here. Grab your Bible. 
Go and sit down and open up your Bible to the Gospel of Matthew. Begin at the beginning of Matthew and read all the way to the end of Matthew. What you're going to do is you're going to walk through the entire forest known as the Gospel of Matthew. Now, as you're reading, I want you to mark down the reference points for individual trees in the forest of Matthew's narratives. Those individual trees are going to be any place where Jesus touches on his uh, or mentions or reveals anything regarding the faith of humanity, okay, talking about his judgment, talking about hell, talking about heaven, anything like that, okay, just mark down where those points are, then go back after you got done reading the entire gospel and go back into the forest and take a closer look at each and every one of those individual trees, if you would, and then just ask yourself this question, write down this question for you to answer, are you ready? What did Jesus teach regarding the fate of humanity? Answer that question and only give answers from the text. Jesus believed the fate of humanity or the fates of humanity are these. I know this because he said X, Y, or Z. Then ask yourself this question, okay? How long, how long does somebody who's sentenced to hell, according to Jesus, stay there. Person sentenced to hell, according to Jesus, stays there for this amount of time. I know this because it says this in this passage, this passage, and this passage. That's all I want you to do. I guarantee you, after you read the Gospel of Mark and you work through this, not Mark, but Matthew, walk through the Gospel of Matthew, and you do this little exercise, you are going to have a very solid, clear understanding about the fate of humanity. I, I I promise you. And you're not going to be left going, hmm, I have a lot more questions than I have answers. Just do that and you'll see what I'm saying. Anyway, coming back to um to Chally's point about the questions that everyone wants the answers to, Chally says, you'll need to just keep reading because frankly, the answers aren't that easy to come by. How he asks the question is just how he asks the question is just as important as the question itself. Quote Has God created billions of people over thousands of years only to select a few to go to heaven and everyone else to suffer forever in hell? Is this acceptable to God? How is this good news? They say that the person who frames the debate is going to win the debate. That is especially true uh, when the debate is framed in this way. Though these particular, uh, through these particular questions, you are damned if you do and damned if you don't. No offense and no pun intended. Now, next section entitled "The Toxic The Toxic Subversion of Jesus's Message." Chally's writes. Bell begins the book with surprising forthrightness. Jesus' story has been hijacked by a number of different stories that Jesus has no interest in telling. Quote: The plot has been lost, and it's time to reclaim it. Bell writes in his preface on page 6, a staggering, this is another quote, um, also from page 6 of the preface, Bell writes, a staggering number of people have been taught that a select few Christians will spend forever in a peaceful, joyous place called heaven, while the rest of humanity spends forever in torment and punishment in hell with no chance for anything better. This is misguided and toxic and ultimately subverts the contagious spread of Jesus' message of love, peace, forgiveness, and joy that our world desperately needs to hear, says Bell. You may want to read that again. 
tell you what, I'm not going to read it again, but if you want to go back and listen to the quote again, you can. Uh, but I continue. It, it really says that, and it, it really means what you think it means, though it takes time for that to become clear. Next section, entitled Heaven is a Place on Earth and We're Making It. Hmm, sounds like Moltmann's uh, eschatology of hope. I continue. Bell says, Bell frames much of the book around time and place, around what the Bible means when it speaks of when and where of heaven and hell. He points to Revelation 21, citing that the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, is coming down to the new earth. Uh, to the Yeah, to the new earth. He also affirms that heaven is a real place where God's will is done and that at present heaven and earth are not yet one. These are points that few Christians could seriously question. Okay, so far so good. His argument progresses to this. Because heaven will eventually come to earth, if we're to take heaven seriously, we must take the suffering that exists in the world seriously now. Therefore, we are called to participate now in the life of the age to come. That's what happens when the future is dragged into the present. That's a direct quote. In light of this, humanity's role within creation is defined so that we are not so much stewards as we are God's partners, participating in the ongoing creation and joy of the world, page 180, and engaging in creating a new social order with Jesus, page 77. This language of partnering and participating is frequently applied by Bell to causes of social justice. But what about hell? Is hell a future reality or a present one? Is it an earthly reality or one that exists elsewhere, Chalice asks. Hell appears to be more about what we do to each other than what we've done to God. Bell reads Jesus' warning of divine punishment as addressing only the temporal rather than both the temporal and the eternal. These warnings were for the religious leaders of the day and had very little to do with some other reality or some other time, he argues. Instead, hell is is a word that refers to the big, wide, terrible evil that comes from the secret hidden deep without our hearts all the way to the massive society, society-wide collapse and chaos that comes when we fail to live in God's, in, in God's world and God's way. There is no fire. No wrath, at least none that is extrinsic to us. Does Rob Bell deny the, ex- the existence of hell? He would say no. We would say yes. He affirms, but only after redefining, and that's just, as, uh, and that's just a clever form of denial. Next section, exegetical gymnastics, Chalice writes. Understanding what Bell truly believes and what he is truly seeking to teach can be a battle. The reader will find himself following many rabbit trails and arriving at several dead ends. It seems that's where Bell's arguments begin to break down. He simply walks away instead of pursuing consistency and logic. This book could not stand the rigors of cross-examination. It has little cohesion, little internal strength. The reader will also find broad statements offered as fact, quote, at the center of the Christian tradition since the first church has been has been the ins, the insistence that history is not tragic hell is not forever and love in the end wins is that true it is easy to say but can it be proven again and again bell turns to the original languages but he quotes no commentaries points to no sources he says things like 
forever is not really a category the biblical writers used, but he offers no proof. Again, it's easy to say, but can it be proven? Can it be proven from a legitimate source? Throughout the book, he engages in what can best be described as exegetical gymnastics, particularly in dealing with the Greek word ion, a small word that is crucial to his arguments. While the word is commonly translated as eternal or everlasting, Bell argues that it can also mean age or period of time or even intensity of of experience. And using this approach, he briefly argues from the parable of the sheep and the goats that eternal punishment isn't eternal, but rather it's an intense period of pruning. Now, here's the thing. Ion and ionos definitely can mean age or period of time. They can also mean eternal. The word's context's help us determine its meaning. So if we assume that these words primarily mean age or period of time, what happens when we apply that definition to John 3.16, where Ionos is used? For God so loved the world that he sent his only Son, so that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but will have life for a period of time. Great point, Tim Challies. I would even argue, just go back to the parable of the sheep and the goats there in Matthew. And Jesus says in, uh, of the goats, and these go away to eternal punishment, and the sheep go to eternal life. I mean, using Rob Bell's, you know, logic here, I mean, so the, the goats go off to, um, to uh, punishment for a period of time, and the sheep go to life for a period of time. In the same, just put it in the same verse, it doesn't even work. Challies points out that when he applies that same logic to John 3.16, he says it's not as encouraging, is it? Well, Bell might argue here that life abundant might be uh, a better fit playing on the intensity of experience angle and trying it to John 10.10 at the end of the day. We're left with an approach that gives more credence to living your best life now than it does to worshiping Jesus. Next section. The good news is better than this. Throughout the book, there are a number of points where we would agree with Bell, particularly when he identifies some of the goofy things that people have concocted to make God's absolute sovereignty palpable. But his answers are equally unsatisfying. Even his good uh, critiques are simply a bridge to bad conclusions. As he makes his case, Bell seems to delight in being obtuse, creating caricatures of opposing views that lack logic and compassion. He paints himself as the victim of the hateful, toxic, venomous denizens of certain corners of the Internet that believe the highest form of allegiance to their God is to attack, defame, and slander others who don't articulate matters of faith as they do. Page 185, that would be me. Thus, Rob Bell appoints himself a martyr for his cause, and anyone who disagrees with him is preemptively silenced. It's a useful technique, that, but hardly a fair one. Uh, meanwhile, he acts as if those who hold to the belief that in Bell's word we get this life and only this life to believe in Jesus, a view passionately held by the vast majority of Christians throughout history, are blowing smoke rather than dealing honestly with the Scriptures. He subtly redefines the questions and answers, and in doing so also shifts the battle lines. 
As he moves those lines, he moves closer and closer to outright blasphemy. Turning 1 Timothy 2, where Paul states that God desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, Bell reflects on a traditional Orthodox view of hell and asks, How great is God? Great enough to achieve what God sets out to do? Or kind of great? Medium great? Great most of the time, but in this, the fate of billions of people, not totally great, sort of great, a little great. A God who would allow people to go to hell is not great. a great God, according to Bell, and the traditional belief that he that he would is devastating, psychological, crushing, terrifying, and traumatizing, and unbearable. God is at best sort of great, a little great, great for saving some, but evil for allowing others to perish. Dangerous words, those. It is a fearful thing to, to ascribe evil to God. So what of the gospel? Where is the gospel, and what is the gospel? Ultimately, what Bell offers in this book is a gospel with no purpose. In his understanding of the Bible, people are essentially good, although we certainly do sin and are completely free to choose or not choose to love God on our own terms. Even then, he seems to believe that most people, given enough time and opportunity, will turn to God. Next section. In This Is Love. If Love Wins accurately represents Bell's view on heaven and hell, at least if our understanding of the book accurately represents his views on heaven and hell, it reveals him as a proponent of a kind of Christian universalism. He would deny the label that he tends to deny any label, but if he looks like a duck and quacks like a duck, well, you know how that thing goes. As soon as the door is open, this is uh, as soon as the door is open to Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, and Baptists from Cleveland, many Christians become very uneasy, saying that Jesus doesn't matter anymore. The cross is irrelevant. It doesn't matter what you believe, and so forth. Not true. Absolutely, unequivocally, unalterably, not true. What Jesus does is declare that He and He alone is saving everybody, and then He leaves the doorway the door way, way open, creating all sorts of possibilities. He is as narrow as himself and as wide as the universe, Bell says. People come to Jesus in all sorts of ways, Bell says. Sometimes people use his name and other times they don't, Bell says. Some people have so much baggage with regard to the name Jesus that when they encounter the mystery present in all of creation, grace, peace, love, acceptance, healing, forgiveness, the last thing that they are inclined to name To name it is Jesus. Bell also says what we see Jesus doing again and again in the midst of constant reminders about the seriousness of following him, living like him, and trusting him is widening the scope and expanse of his saving work. That is what we know as universalism, and it is cause for mourning. Christians do not need more confusion. They need clarity. They need teachers who are willing to deal honestly with what the Bible says, no matter how hard the truth is. And let's be honest, many truths are very, very hard to swallow. Love does win, but not the kind of love that Bell talks about in his book. The love he describes is one that is founded solely on the idea that that the primary object of God's love is man. Indeed, the whole story he writes can be summed up in these words, For God so loved the world. But this doesn't hold a candle to altogether amazing love of God actually shown in the Bible. The God who shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5.8, who acts on our behalf, not so much because his love for us is great, but because he is great, Isaiah 48, verse 9, Ezekiel 20, 
verse 9, 14, 22, 44. Chapter 36, verse 22, John 17, 1 through 5. That's the kind of love that wins. That's the kind of love that motivates us to love our neighbors enough to compel them to flee from the wrath to come. And our love for people means nothing if we do not first and foremost love God enough to be honest about him. Fantastic critique. Thank you, Tim Challies, for taking the time and getting a hold of a copy of that book and helping us understand what it is ahead of time. Is Rob Bell a universalist? Yeah, he is. And Tim Challies just argued very well from Rob Bell's new book, Love Wins, that that's the case. We're up on our second break. When we come back, it'll be sermon review time. We're going to be listening to a debate uh, between Dr. Walter Martin, I forget the name of the liberal, but it's going to be on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's some good stuff. You don't want to miss it. So uh, hang in there. Um, let me uh, Let me run this up here. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition of Fighting for the Faith or any previous editions, you could do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, pansy, turning photo written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. Going to be listening to a good debate between uh, Dr. Walter Martin and Dr. Dale Miller on the history and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
The one thing you could say about Dr. Walter Martin, um, he sounds nothing like Rob Bell. Had no problem teaching and defending the hard truths of Scripture. Here we go. Let's cue up our music here. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today we're going to be reviewing a debate, a debate between Dr. Dale Miller and Dr. Walter Martin, the late sainted Dr. Walter Martin. Dr. Martin was actually good friends with uh, my mentor, Dr. Rod Rosenblatt, and uh, one of my professors, Dr. John Warwick Montgomery. Anyway, the debate is on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Did Jesus rise bodily? It's important to note that Dr. Dale Miller will be uh, pretty much defending poorly the typical liberal position on the subject. But I'm sure it will be edifying. I mean, because, you know, Dr. Dale Miller, being an enlightened liberal that he is, he's... He's found a better way to understand the resurrection than to believe that Jesus actually rose, you know, bodily. <clears throat> anyway, let's um, kill the music. So without any further ado, here is the uh, debate between Dr. Dale Miller and Dr. Walter Martin on the history and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're going to take just a minute to introduce our topic tonight of debate, as well as our debaters, and then proceed into the debate. Our topic of debate tonight is the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, as related to the accounts given of that in the Gospels, in the canonical literature of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. A particular note tonight will be a discussion of the resurrection as it relates to being a historical fact and a metaphor of religious experience. Is it either or, both and, just what is it? And that is the topic that we take up tonight. It's also my privilege to introduce to you tonight the people who are involved in this debate. Our first individual is Dr. Dale Miller, who is seated to your right, and, <laughs> and he's waving too. <laughs> Dr. Miller comes from our area here to our conference tonight, and he's a Disciples of Christ minister who has been at Drake University for 33 years in the area of religion. He's the author of many books, including The Adult Son, which is a study in the Gospel of Mark, and in the area of ethics, he has a book entitled Death Penalty Update. The other person on the other side of the table to the left is Dr. Walter Martin. Dr. Martin rode the plane in this afternoon with Josh McDowell, and they didn't know it. <laughs> Dr. Martin comes to us and is a noted authority on cults and occults. He has authored numerous books, including a newly revised Kingdom of the Cults. Many of you in the Des Moines area know him as the Bible Answer Man from his live radio program in which Dr. Martin answers questions about religion. Our timekeeper tonight is Bob Mason, who is seated just to the second to the right. And our moderator this evening is Ernie Fisher. Ernie is the chairperson of the men who provide the spiritual leadership of First Federated Church and is an educator in our city. I'm going to turn the debate over to Ernie, and Ernie is going to give us the procedure tonight of how the debate will go about. Thank you, Kent. 
Again, we welcome you tonight and are glad that so many of you are here. We would like to have you understand the basic format of our uh, debate this evening. It has been determined that uh, Dr. Miller will go first, and he will have uh, 15 minutes in which he will be essentially uh, presenting his opening remarks. And if you would like to follow along with some of the uh, substance of what he is going to share with us, you have in your blue folder uh, the document that he will be uh, utilizing. Uh, then there will be 15-minute uh, uh, time for uh, Dr. Martin to make his opening remarks. Now, the way that we will operate during that time period and then the ensuing time periods will be that uh, when they have two minutes remaining of that 15 minutes and, of course, the other time periods, then our timekeeper, Bob Mason, will lift up this green flag indicating to the gentleman uh, so that there's no noise, we're not going to interrupt them because we're going to tape this, um, they have two minutes remaining. Then when they have one minute remaining, he will lift up the yellow uh, flag, and then when it's time to stop, the red one. <laughs> now, so that there's no great unhappiness, should they be in the middle of a sentence, we will obviously let them complete that sentence. and just in case there is uh, miscommunication, should uh, they continue on, our timekeeper will stand to be a physical presence to allow them to stop. And uh, I'm sure that this will not happen, but we can turn the microphones off, you know. So. <laughs> uh, we want you to participate along the line of as they are making their original 15-minute presentation, you hopefully have a 3 by 5 slip of paper in your packet. Um, if you don't, uh, the ushers, I'm sure, will allow you to have one. Uh, if you have a question that you would like directed to either of the gentlemen, then if you would please write that on this slip of paper, raise it into the air, and one of the ushers will make themselves available. And of course, if you would be courteous enough to pass those down as the ushers are in the aisles. Uh, they will be brought up here, and then as time permits, we will allow both gentlemen to speak to those questions in turn, and then the other, of course, have rebuttal. Then, after um, we have a series of questions, again, as time permits, then each gentleman will have a 10-minute time for their closing remarks. So following that procedure, we are again very pleased, and we would ask Dr. Miller to kindly give us his opening remarks. Three months ago, my wife went on a... Uh trip to Nicaragua as a witness for peace, and everybody was afraid for her except her. And tonight I come here and all my friends think I've got rocks in my head for, <laughs> for coming uh, to speak in uh, this setting, and I'm the only one who's confident about it among them, and for two reasons. One that I intend to argue as a Christian from within the church not as an atheist or a scientist or an external critic. And secondly, that I intend to argue from scripture rather than from any creed. And I'm confident that those kind of approaches will receive a good reception. From the time of Martin Luther on, the church has mostly given lip service to the Bible, but has arduously served written and unwritten creeds 
most of them full of radical distortions of Scripture. I do not mean any one church has done this. I mean all of them, from the most fundamentalist to the most liberal, from the Jehovah's Witnesses to the Unitarians, and I assume that all of us here are somewhere in between those kinds of extremes. We are presently members of churches which are officially non-creedal, but which in practice impose informal creedal beliefs upon us. So I want you to know that every statement that I'm about to make about resurrection is based on my best scholarly and spiritual interpretation of scripture, not in any kind of modernistic or creedal imposition of science or dogma upon the Bible. So I ask you to think prayerfully with me. There are a wide variety of New Testament meanings of resurrection. By resurrection I mean any event in which a person who is physically dead, really dead, returns to life, regardless of whether the return is the result of that person's own initiative or in response to an act by another person or by God. Thus, for example, in the scripture, if Jesus or Jairus' daughter or the widow's sons in the Elijah-Elisha stories were really dead and really came back to life, each would fit my definition of resurrection. In fact, in the biblical narratives, it is declared that Jesus and the sons of the widows were really dead and that, the, and that the daughter of Jairus was not. Jesus said of her that she was only sleeping, although everyone else thought that she was really dead. Thus, in some sense, she was raised, but by my definition, she was not really dead and therefore not resurrected. And I assume that's the definition that we'd be fairly well agreed on. Now, it's one thing to say that resurrection is defined as an event, as I've just done. It's quite another thing to recognize that any event can be used as a metaphor. And for those not comfortable with that word, I wanted to just give you a couple of examples of it. First, the physical reality of fences, fences which separate fields or yards or whatever, whether the fences are made out of barbed wire or wood or rocks or whatever. Used as a metaphor, fences could be anything which divide people from each other. Some people are divided from others by geographical distance, others by economic biases, racial prejudice, distrust of strangers, male-female stereotypes communist capitalist antagonisms, the experience of being lied to, and on and on. So I would describe each of those metaphorically as a fence dividing one person or group from another. To do so would be to use fence as a metaphor, as a meaning, rather than as a physical object. If all the physical fences in the world were to disappear, the metaphor of fences would still make sense. Use a different example. I've never in my life seen an actual knight in shining armor, but I know the metaphor well. Many people are waiting for a knight in shining armor to rescue them from the complexities of life. They are not waiting for a man dressed in a metallic uniform. Their hoped-for knight is a metaphor for anyone who has persuasive, easy answers to hard, difficult questions. Now, in precisely that sense, 
the basic position which I wish to stake out in this debate, or perhaps it'll be a discussion, I don't know, is that resurrection in the New Testament is more, is more a metaphor for certain kinds of religious experience than it is a historical description of a historical event. I occasionally use with my students a paper in which I list 24 different ways of using the concept resurrection in the Bible. The text is wrong in your hand there. 24 is too many for me to cover here, so I'll pick out only a symbolic few. As a preliminary, I note that the variety of meanings of resurrection, or of metaphors of resurrection, preceded Christianity, that is, they were in Judaism. In the Old Testament, for example, in Ezekiel 37, you know that story, the heel bone connected to the ankle bone, hear the word of the Lord. Resurrection is the rising of all the bodies of all the Jews out of the city dump on the day of resurrection and all the bones be hooked together again. Hosea 6.2, totally different metaphor, conceives of the nation of Israel defeated in battle and then resurrected as a nation on the third day. In the Elijah and Elisha stories in First and Second Kings, each of them resurrected a person by lying on the body three times. In Mark 12, different Jewish concept, Jesus said to the Sadducees that they did not understand the nature of resurrection when they thought in terms of personal immortality of this world relationships, you know, being married to the same spouse in heaven or whatever. Instead, they should have thought in terms of the ongoing descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the I amness of God. Thus there was already a tradition within which resurrection could have more than one meaning. That variety is greatly expanded in the New Testament. Consider the following examples from the Gospel of Matthew first. The resurrected Jesus appeared bodily to Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, and then to eleven disciples. On both occasions, Jesus was worshipped, as he had been earlier in the Gospel when he calmed the sea. Matthew's version focuses on the miraculousness of the event, and therefore Jesus' supernatural significance. Second, from Mark. In Mark, there is no resurrection appearance. In Mark 13, earlier, Jesus warns in advance against accepting either resurrection appearances or belief in appearances on the grounds that false Christs use signs and wonders to lead astray the elect. In the resurrection account itself, Mark suggests that the meaning of the resurrection is that the disciples have to return to Galilee to begin their own journeys to their own crucifixions. And the women who hear the message are appropriately terrified by this. Third, in both Luke and John, First in Luke, the longest Lucan resurrection narrative concerns the appearance of two men on the road to Emmaus. The issue, as in all the resurrection stories in Luke and John, is the immediate failure to recognize Jesus by those who have known him best. In the Emmaus story, the two recognize Jesus when they take a risk on behalf of a stranger, symbolized by their giving him their broken bread. In each appearance story in John, there is in each story a crucifixion element. 
in the story itself, which makes recognition possible when ordinary eyesight does not. To return to Matthew, in the marvelous story about the Day of Judgment in Matthew 25, Jesus claims to have been resurrected in the lives of the hungry, the thirsty, the stranger, the prisoner, and so forth. That is, in the lives of what he calls the least of these, my brethren. If we do not recognize him in those resurrection forms, says Matthew, we do not recognize him at all. That story is making the same point as the Luke-John narratives. In Acts, the resurrected Christ appears to Saul, who's going to become Paul, on the third day after he becomes blind on the road. He appears in the person of a Christian in Damascus who dares to invite a known murderer into his fellowship, thus risking both his own life and that of his Christian friends. In Paul's epistles, Paul uses resurrection imagery. This is slightly different. Uses resurrection imagery about himself in past, present, and future tenses. In the past, he claims to have already died and to have been raised as a new person. In the present, he claims to die daily and to be raised, hence, daily. In the future, he looks forward to being resurrected into a kind of body which is qualitatively different from the one that he presently has. Equally as important as this diversity is his claim in 1 Corinthians 15 that he and other Christians and Jesus have all died and have all been resurrected in the same way or will be. If it is not possible for us, Paul argues, then it could not have happened for Jesus Christ. Now, when we compare the Acts version with the Luke-John versions above, we see that in Acts, Jesus is depicted as being resurrected in the lives of the Christian, in the life of the Christian who forgives others, whereas in Matthew, for example, he is depicted as being resurrected in the life of the poor who desperately need to be helped as you can be resurrected either on the giving end or on the receiving end, as it were, of that kind of relationship. Overall, the whole list of resurrection passages indicates that in the New Testament, resurrection is a metaphor with a wide range of meanings, each of which is part of the gospel. No one of the meanings is so definitive as to exclude any of the others. And in particular, for purposes of this debate, there is never, other than in Matthew, a focus on the factuality of the resurrection without... Now, don't, don't put a period there for me. <laughs> there is, there is uh, never, other than in Matthew, a focus on the factuality of the resurrection without one of the other themes being raised as the central point of the story or teaching. Churches today have been led astray by the acrimonious disagreement between so-called conservatives and so-called liberals. Both have acted as if devotion to science without miracle, on the one hand, or devotion to miracle in opposition to science, on the other hand, were the central issue in interpreting scripture. I never find that to be the case. The biblical writers in both the Old and New Testaments take miracle totally for granted. 
but never assume that miracle is automatically on the side of God or godliness. What is always at issue are religious and moral values which are superior, according to the biblical text, to miraculousness and which judge miraculousness as being either godly or satanic. That is exactly what I find in regard to resurrection. It is not the fact of the miracle of resurrection, but the relationship of resurrection to the voluntary self-giving of crucifixion, which is the central concern of all the authors in one way or another. Just the one in waving a red flag at me. <laughs> the world holds it to be impossible for voluntary self-giving to be a victorious way of life. The resurrection miracle is symbolic evidence that Jesus and the New Testament authors found the judgment of the world to be wrong. There is victorious living in daily self-giving. It is unfortunate that most of the members of the church today, like the Jews and Gentiles of old, still find that to be a scandal and a stumbling block, much preferring easy miracles to disciplined self-giving. Thank you for letting me be here with you. Permit me to say that I love academic discussions and debates because it removes it from the realm of the personal and places this in the area of facts. And facts is what I deal with all the time as a professor in a law school and evidence. I'm delighted that uh, Dr. Miller has uh, set as the ground rules that we should confine ourselves to the facts and to the evidence because I think that's where the entire thing rests. And by way of introducing myself somewhat because I'm not as well known as Dr. Miller is in the area. I would like you to know what my position is because I have a definite one. I am a redeemed liberal Protestant, raised in the liberal theology of the Episcopal Church, educated in Roman Catholic schools, and converted to evangelical Christianity. I am a Baptist minister by denomination, a rational empiricist by philosophy, and an evidentialist in apologetics. That's a mouthful. What it means is I'm an Orthodox Christian of the Reformed theologian's vocabulary. I'm interested in this debate or discussion to compare the New Testament evidence itself with the theories and concepts as introduced by Dr. Miller. First, I'd like to state that the basic primary meaning of the term resurrection in both the Old Testament and the New Testament linguistically and contextually refers to the resuscitation of a clinically dead body. That is its primary meaning. Secondly, metaphorical usage of the term is limited to a handful of texts and always clearly defined in context. Thirdly, contrary to Professor Miller's assertion that the creeds of the church, quote, radically distort the Bible, close quote, they share in common with scripture at least 18 foundational teachings of early Christianity. You could re con reconstruct all New Testament theology from the creeds of Christendom with very little variation. The creeds and the Bible agree on the nature of God, the deity of Christ, his virgin birth, his sinlessness, his miracles, his blood atonement on the cross, 
salvation by grace is a gift from God, justification by faith before God and by works before men, baptism and communion, the second coming of Christ, the resurrection of the dead, heaven and hell, and the Bible is divinely inspired, trustworthy, and authoritative in all matters of faith and morals. Regarding biblical interpretation, Professor Miller advocates in his writings what he calls composite criticism. In this particular viewpoint, it represents a destructive form of analysis that, when carried to its logical conclusion, destroys the integrity of the authors of the New Testament and the New Testament text itself. No type of liberal destructive higher criticism of Scripture, be it form criticism, redaction criticism, or composite criticism, may be properly superimposed upon the Bible to make it say or teach what the literal intent of the grammar and context plainly deny. Such methods of criticism are 1,600 years after the fact of known and historically verifiable Christian theology, as taught by the Church Fathers, the creeds of Christendom, and as mentioned by Dr. Karl Barth, who himself was New Orthodox, in his book, The Faith of the Church, maintaining its creedal structure based squarely upon biblical theology. We may not fairly impose any system of analysis or interpretation deduced from the text, culture, or style as a means of contradicting the text itself. It is my basic thesis that Christ and the apostles knew infinitely more about the scriptures than do the critics who were not eyewitnesses. Christ was taught uniquely by his Father and the apostles by the Holy Spirit. Critics of scripture distort and contradict both Christ and the apostles. Christ the living word and scripture the written word are authoritative. The critics are not. John Updike very carefully in a poem made this point. Make no mistake, if he rose at all it was as his body. Let us not mock God with metaphor, analogy, sidestepping and transcendence making of the event a parable, a sign painted in the faded credulity of earlier ages. Let us walk through the door. What does it mean to walk through the door? In his previous remarks, Professor Miller defines resurrection in a very specific way. I'd like to quote that definition, if I might, because it is the crux of this discussion. By resurrection, I mean an event, any event, in which a person who is physically dead, really dead, returns to life, regardless of whether the return is the result of that person's own initiative or in response to an act by another person or by God. I assume that you will agree with my definition so that we do not have to debate about it. I would like to point out that the definition given here in the paper which was just read is the direct opposite of the definition the professor gives in his books and in his public interviews. I quote from the local newspaper here, Jesus' historic role disputed by Drake professor. At the Christmas celebration of the birth of Jesus approaches, a Drake University religion professor has announced his scholarly conclusion that the existence of a historical Jesus is not necessary for Christian faith. 
and his personal view that there was no such historical figure. Close quote. How can we talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ in the context of a physical body when the professor does not believe in the historicity of the person? I find that to be a very important contradiction. Professor Miller also stated that what is needed is a pro-religious presentation that accounts for how Christianity in general began and how the Jesus story in particular began. There was no Jesus story. There was Jesus. There was the apostles. There were the disciples. There were the people who were there at Pentecost filled with the Holy Spirit. There were people who went out preaching the gospel, not of some non-existent person or of some corpse stuffed in an ignominious Palestinian grave, but of a living person, God the Son, second person of the Trinity. The professor also goes on to say that all sources outside the Bible are suspect at best when you want to talk about the historicity of Jesus. I would call attention to the fact, which I'm sure he's aware of, that the Jewish Talmud acknowledges the existence of Jesus of Nazareth as an historic person and calls him a bastard. You can hardly call a man a bastard who was never born or who is not an historical character. There are other sources, such as Pliny the Younger and Flavius Josephus. So when we are talking about resurrection, Professor Miller is not talking about the same thing I am talking about. He is not talking about the same thing that historic Christianity is talking about. He has turned it into a metaphorical presentation, and this is not consistent with historic biblical theology. One of his books on the subject to document this, the adult son, Drake University, Des Moines, Iowa, tells us exactly what he believes about the resurrection of Jesus. It is the direct opposite of what he read to us tonight. He says, all physical appearances of Jesus fail to communicate his identity to those who should have recognized him if all that was at issue was a resuscitated corpse. He goes on, thus in John and Luke, the resurrection of Jesus was quite clearly an invitation to his followers to repeat the rhythm of his career and come eventually to their own crucifixion. One final question. In what sense was Jesus himself resurrected? The logic of the comments thus far have been to the effect that the resurrection was an experience of the disciples who were to return to their own versions of Galilee and repeat each in their own setting the quest for father-son reconciliation which would lead them to a new Jerusalem of voluntary death and judicial execution. Is that all? The answer lies in the distinction between Jesus, listen carefully, as a body and Jesus as the Son. It's the false distinction, totally contrary to New Testament theology. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, an historic person who died on the cross for your sins and mine. He is not the conjecture of a liberal, destructive, higher critical theory, which can be approached and dismissed at will, altered by circumstance. The scripture stands firm. There is an historic Jesus, an historic death, and an historic resurrection. He is declared to be the Son of God with power by resurrection from the dead. He cannot be the Son of God with power if this statement is right. Quote, Jesus as Son was resurrected, 
By his willingness to die to the childhood dependency concept of sonship, he entered automatically into a reborn adult sonship of independence. Such a transformation of the spirit occurs in the body, but is not defined by what happens to the body. Very clear. By resurrection, I mean the resuscitation, resuscitation of a body. That was the initial statement. That is contradicted very clearly by both the newspaper and by the adult son book. Now, academically speaking, we can afford to debate these issues forever. But spiritually, there is a very important question to be answered. If there's no historical Jesus, then the writers of the New Testament are fabricators at best and liars at worst. In law, not in theology, one examines evidence, factual data. The factual data for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is by eyewitness accounts. The critics, whoever they may be, criticize it almost 2,000 years after the fact. Their testimony is not worth the powder to blow it to purgatory. The only real evidence is the New Testament documents and the fact of our Lord's prophecy. If Jesus were telling the truth, then Professor Miller is wrong. Because Jesus said, you destroy this body, and in three days I will raise it up. If he didn't do that, all New Testament Christianity is fraud. The disciples would never have believed in him, and they would have known that he was a false prophet. But when he presented himself alive with infallible proof, and said, if you don't believe it's me, put your finger into my hand and your hand into my side, do not be without faith, believe. And at that juncture, Thomas fell down in front of him and said, Hokurios mu, Hoseos mu, my Lord Jehovah God. And he worshipped him, not in a Hellenistic context, but in the context of Judaism, son of God with power, the identity of the Lord Jesus. What we have here in our debate tonight or discussion is a definition of resurrection tailored to an evangelical audience by a liberal professor who flatly rejects biblical theology on the historicity, if not the, resur not the resurrection, but the existence of Christ himself. It will be possible to go on and cite many other things, but the little flags are going up, and therefore I do not wish to have the ground drop out from under me and plunge into the alligator pit. Because of that, I will shorten my presentation. One of the things that particularly disturbed me about the professor's presentation was the fact that he does not know what a fundamentalist is. On page one, and I know something about this being an expert on cults, he describes Jehovah's Witnesses as fundamentalists. If they're fundamentalists, Ayatollah Khomeini is a Jew. <laughs> Jehovah's Witnesses think that Jesus Christ is Michael the Archangel, as far out as composite criticism gets. Not that far out. They don't believe in his bodily resurrection from the dead, but they admit there's an historical Jesus. So let us examine very carefully a very nice presentation of a liberal approach using our vocabulary, but not meaning the same thing. Once we understand that, there will be no difference of opinion at all. Got to pause there. Did you hear what he said? A liberal opinion using the same vocabulary, but not meaning the same thing. 
That is the typical trick of liberals, cultists, and those who twist the Bible. And that's exactly what Rob Bell does in his book. Pours new meaning into an old word so that he can sound like he's Christian, but he's not. Rose is a rose is a rose. I thank you. Having not had any questions brought forward at this time, I would again encourage, if you have a question, to raise it. Uh, if it is germane to the opening remarks, we would love to offer it for the gentleman to discuss. This question will be placed uh, first before Dr. Miller, and then the second question, uh, or and then re- rebutted, of course, by Dr. Martin. And the second question, uh, we will have Dr. Martin go first and rebuttal by uh, Dr. Miller. So, first question. How can it be explained that the apostles and the early Christians gave testimony to the fact and the validity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, even at the risk of their own lives? They were not speaking as liars. I guess my answer to that is simple. I've never said they were liars. <laughs> Not in any way, shape, or form. Dr. Martin says... You, you want me to rebut that? Or are you going to ask me a question? No, rebut that. Oh. Or make any comment uh, if you wish. The, the comment that I make, wish to make is that the professor has not addressed his book. He's not addressed the article in the newspaper wherein he contradicts the definition of resurrection which he gave us tonight. I would like a comment on that, some response to that, which I think is very important. And uh, so far we have not received that. I didn't say he said that the New Testament writers were liars. I said carried to its logical conclusions. And logical consistency, according to his own book, is the ultimate test. It would inevitably devolve to that. Thank you. And if you would, uh, the second question. What about the resurrection of Lazarus raised in front of many witnesses? He was dead four days and was decomposing, not regarded as a metaphor, but recorded as a fact. John 11, 1. According to John 11, uh, Lazarus was raised from the dead by the Lord Jesus Christ. When Mary came to him, Mary said, I know that whatever you ask of God, he will give it to you. Jesus said, your brother will rise again. And she said, I know that. At the resurrection, at the last day, the Jews believed in the resurrection of the last day and eternal judgment. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. One of the instances which the professor could quote easily, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Whoever lives and believes in me shall not die for all eternity. Resurrection in the New Testament, the very word it's, the words itself, and in the Old Testament, are primarily and basically in reference to bodily resurrection. There is no such thing as the resurrection of ghosts. And in Luke 24, Jesus refutes that idea completely.
I agree 100% with uh, all that uh, Dr. Martin said in that answer. But I simply want to add to it, or I really want to contradict it in a, in a totally different sense, based on the question, not on his answer. You all know that any sentence, any sentence, spoken in different contexts can carry different meanings. You all know that something which is a statement of truth in exactly the same words in a different context could be a lie or an error or a misconception or whatever. You all know about poetry in which in poetry it is intended by the poet that words have more than one meaning, a multivalence of meanings. So that you can't argue just on the surface that because a sentence says X, that therefore that sentence was intended as fact or poetry or, you know, whatever. Uh, in every case, you have to look in the, in the total context of a total book, and that's, what comp that's all composition criticism is, is reading whole books as books, trying to pay attention to what the author intended in the book based on the internal clues in the book. And, and then on the basis of that, you can determine what the meaning is of particular passages. Dr. Miller, first on, on this third question. If Jesus was not bodily raised, then who do you say he is and what is his value? Now, you've not heard one word out of me tonight about Jesus not being bodily raised. Not one word. You've not heard one word out of me about denying the miracle of the resurrection. My position throughout has been, and, and while in the adult, the adult book is a book I wrote a long time ago, which I have subsequently withdrawn from sale, which I no longer abide by as a statement of where my position is, so I don't even want to debate that book. But in terms of the, uh, the issue that I've raised with you tonight, I'm perfectly willing to affirm both the miracle of bodily resurrection and the proposition which I made that with that, that in the New Testament, that the resurrection stories are presented more as metaphors than as primarily statements of fact in terms of their meaning. So I'm not going to get drawn into an issue that, that pits fact versus non-fact as if that's what I was talking about. That has nothing to do with the presentation that I've made or with my position or what I teach day by day in the university or what I practice day by day in the church. I understand the professor correctly. He says you haven't heard a word from him tonight. If that's true and you've withdrawn the adult son and you don't believe what it basically says anymore, um, then um, I would like to ask you if you've changed your mind since 12-7-1985, where you said a mouthful in your own newspaper. You said in your own newspaper you did not personally believe that there was such a historical figure as Jesus of Nazareth. 
tell us how you get a miracle of resurrection out of a person that was never born to begin with. Non-historical means non-existent, unless, of course, you invent it. Again, I would draw your attention to other statements which you made. So these are statements which are current as of last year. Uh, you said, quote, it implies the possibility for the Jesus story being written without there having been a Jesus, because the materials at the base of the story are from non-Jesus biblical sources. Again, on the subject, he cites the New Testament. Uh, such, excuse me, Miller's studies convinced him that among early Jesus believers, the Messiah was thought of only as a crucified one. He cites the New Testament books of James and John. That's patent nonsense. The New Testament writers and the New Testament followers didn't think of Jesus as the crucified one. They thought of him as the resurrected Lord. That's why his prophecies of resurrection in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are clear-cut prophecies that he would return from the dead in his own body. That's why Paul refers to it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The early Christians were not worshiping a body impaled on a cross. They were worshiping a risen Savior who said, because I live, you will live also. We have to recognize the fact that there is meaning and fact together. The fact is he rose from the dead. The meaning is that we will rise with him now in the newness of life and then in the final resurrection of our bodies. It's very important. Modern belief that there was a historical Jesus has tended toward the first of those notions. If Jesus said something, that ends the discussion. I would like to ask the professor, if Jesus says something, does that end the discussion for you? The answer to the last question is no. When Dr. McDougall invited me to participate tonight, he invited me to come and debate the historical Jesus issue. And I said to him, that issue is much too complicated to try to set before an audience in the kind of time limit that we have available to us. So let's take some more limited topic, and we discussed that for a while and agreed on the one that, that uh, I presented. It really would take an hour for me to make the long presentation which I made and which the newspaper is reporting in terms of the article which uh, Dr. Martin refers to and, and quotes from. Generally, Mr. Simbro did a good job in that article. But, but Mr. Simbro's writing about me is not me <laughs> making a statement. But I don't want to, I don't want to dodge the, the kind of quotations that he's made on that ground only. But the issue of the interpretation of the New Testament on the basis of what is intended according to the internal evidence in the whole of Matthew and the whole of Mark and the whole of Luke and the whole of John and Acts, etc is is quite a different topic for discussion in terms of an overall interpretation than the interpretation of any one subject matter within that. I'd be delighted to be invited back sometime in a, in a non-debate format to uh, 
to sit before any of you and, and describe that, but it would take a long time to do it, to set out the terms of that method of interpretation, which led me to those conclusions. But I would be delighted to do that sometime. Dr. Miller, uh, forgive me, I think that this will be the last question, um, because simply of time. Um, this may take more time, and if you feel comfortable, we will allow that. What criteria do you use for deciding whether the Bible is speaking literally or metaphorically of resurrection? That's an excellent question. Thank you. In reading any anything, the, the story in the morning newspaper, the editorial on the editorial page, the comic strip, whatever, all of us look either consciously or unconsciously for clues as to what the author of whatever it is that we're reading means. We all do that all the time. And, I, and we, all do, we ought all to be doing that in Scripture as well, using our best minds toward that end. What I look for in Scripture are themes which are persistent in any one author's writing. I'll give you an example. In the Gospel of Luke, there is a theme which starts out with John the Baptizer preparing the way of the Lord. And then all the way through the book, there are indications of the ways in which first John prepares the way of the Lord by saying a couple of sentences which Jesus later also says in almost exactly the same words and then in which other sentences are said earlier in the book and then said later in the book again as if the earlier sentence was preparing the way for the, for the later statement of it in a different context. So that preparing the way of the Lord has a, uh, has a powerful meaning in that book because of the context in the book. In the Gospel of Matthew, John also is preparing the way of the Lord, but Matthew never develops the theme. So that preparing the way of the Lord has one meaning in Luke and becomes metaphorical as it goes along. It did not do that in the Gospel of Matthew. I'm really ignoring your sign because he told me I could take more time. <laughs> I'm not going to take much more time though. In particular, on metaphor, what I look for are ways in which the, uh, the surface meaning of anything is repeated at a deeper and spiritual level, more spiritual level than just a surface meaning. Baptism, as a surface event, John says of it, John the Baptist says of it, if it's just washing the skin, then that's a lot less important than being baptized spiritually by the Holy Spirit by my successor. After that, in the Gospel of Mark, metaphorically, there are oh, a dozen or 15 different references to being cleansed in different ways. Some of them superficial, like the leper's skin being cleansed superficially on the outside. There's over against internal cleansing of people who have hardened hearts. So I look for those kinds of, of uh, clues in the text 
to determine whether to take something merely superficially, externally, factually only, or whether to take it metaphorically. Thanks for the extra time. Thank you. About four minutes. In rebuttal, I simply would say, I asked the professor the question about if Jesus said something, was it final, authoritative? He said, no, not for him. I think that's a very important point, the difference between what I'm saying and he's saying, what historic Christianity says, and what composite criticism of the Bible says, which he champions. Namely, if Jesus Christ says it, and he is who he said he was, then he is to be believed above all else. If he's not who he said he was, and the resurrection is in the cuckoo land of linguistic jungles created by theologians, then it's perfectly rational and empirically valid to say that if the central doctrine of the Christian faith is in error, then all of it is damn nonsense. I'm speaking as a rational empiricist. If Christ be not risen from the dead, your faith is empty. You are still in your sins, and you are of all men most miserable because we are testifying God raised his son from the dead whom he did not raise from the dead, if the dead do not rise. The professor does not have Jesus Christ as his final authority. He has higher critical, destructive critical concepts of the Bible. And I'm not asking for really lengthy answers. I've made very short points based upon what he said. I have not got any response to those specific points. An example in his own writings again. He says, in all the resurrection stories in John is the immediate failure to recognize Jesus by those who have known him best. Now that is just simply not true. Flat out not true. John chapter 20. Jesus appears in the upper room to his disciples. Everybody knows it's Jesus. Thomas is there, who had previously said, unless I put my finger into his hand and my hand into his side, I will not believe. Thomas and Walter are of the same brotherhood. Empiricists. I want to see proof. Jesus said, put your finger in my hand and your hand into my side and don't be without faith. Believe. Professor Miller says, in all the resurrection stories in John, the immediate failure to recognize Jesus by those who have known him best. Not true at all. They recognized him in the upper room instantly by the wounds in his hands and his feet. I cannot help but point out that the criteria I use for deciding whether the Bible is speaking literally or metaphorically is its grammar and its context, not a vague collection of ideas that I pick up from different parts of the text, which I think give me a trend or an understanding of what it says. Either the text speaks plainly, and it is the word of God, or with Bultmann, it is mythology. And let's not waste any more time with it. The professor doesn't want any part of the historicity of Christ. He doesn't want any part of the historicity of the resurrection. He states in the newspaper very clearly what he believes, yet his opening statement to us was the direct opposite. He said he believes it. If he does, why one year ago did he say he didn't, and has he changed his mind? I thank you for your questions. I thank you, gentlemen, for your response to those. We would now give uh, each uh, 10 minutes for their closing remarks. Dr. Miller, first. Dr. 
Dr. Martin is kind of an expert at name calling and you know, telling me all kinds of things that I believe that I don't believe, etc. I do not think the New Testament is an error at any point. As you know, as a kind of a basic principle of interpretation of mine, I do not agree with Boltmann. I totally reject destructive higher criticism of the Bible. I'm interested in trying to faithfully read the evidence from the inside of books to understand what they're saying and to listen to God's revelation to me through that process. And in doing that, I think that I'm discovering in this time, 20 centuries later, things that most of the church has missed for most of the centuries in its interpretation of the New Testament, primarily because it did not pay enough faithful attention to the text themselves, but assumed ahead of time that it knew what the meaning was and kept imposing the meaning which they already had in their head, upon the text. You see something different by way of evidence when you already think you know what you're going to see. That's been proved in the courts thousands of times, in which witnesses have testified on the stand to things which were factually in error and were sure that they saw them. And we all do that when we think we know ahead of time what we're looking for, and then we'll see it. And I'm trying as much as possible in my reading to, uh, to strip away that preconception as to what's there in order to read Scripture faithfully according to its own revelation to me rather than according to my preconception of it. That's real hard work. And it does not lend itself to easy answers that can come up with slogans that can be easily understood. Truth hardly ever does. We sing a song in church, I hope you have it in your hymnal, which uh, has a line in it to the effect that uh, truth is more likely to be on the scaffold than on the throne. The crucifixion and resurrection are clearly the heart of the gospel. And the central issue in the interpretation of the New Testament is ultimately the interpretation of those two facts and meanings and their realities and their relationship to us and to our lives. And I want to affirm both of them before you without getting into the issue about the historical Jesus, which complicates that argument, but which does not essentially change anything that I've said tonight and all of which I believe and witness to you as my own Christian concept. 
Thank you. I'm sorry if I've been interpreted or misinterpreted as calling names. I began by saying we were discussing academically these issues. I tried to maintain academically critiques of the professor, his academic views. I apologize if in any way it's been interpreted otherwise. Uh, personally, I find him to be a charming fellow uh, with whom I have violent disagreements. <laughs> At any point, to sum up, tonight I have addressed the subject of the fact, historically, of the resurrection. I've addressed the fact of the texts, context, grammar, and as a professor of biblical interpretation, how these all bear at giving us the record of the New Testament. The position I have given you tonight rests upon the bedrock of historic Catholic theology, Orthodox theology, and Reformation theology. The views which were expressed by the professor arose in the 18th century, evolved till today. They are just 1,600 years too late. The historic faith of the church was here before they got here. It will be here after they are all dust because the kingdom of God rests upon the Son of God with power by resurrection from the dead. Resurrection is not just an empty term to be bandied about theologically. It is not something that in Easter we talk about in a nonchalant way and say, isn't it wonderful we can put on our new clothes and go to church, give the kids eggs and rabbits. I read an article by a professor at Berkeley on the subject of the resurrection. It was fascinating, very much reminiscent of what we heard today. He said, we will never know what happened that glorious morning, but something happened. To quote that great theologian Dick Martin, you bet your bippy, something happened. Something happened on that day that dated the calendar of the world. Buddha, Mohammed, Zoroaster, and Confucius all share one thing in common. They're dead. And they stayed that way. The philosophers and religious leaders of earth are dead, and they stayed that way. The professor talks about evidence. Permit me to present the evidence. 500 people saw him alive with infallible proof after his resurrection, says the Apostle Paul, and most of them, said Paul, are alive until this day. If you don't believe me, go ask them. One eyewitness account corroborated by 499 others will put you and him and me in the electric chair or in jail in a court of law. And I insist that we judge the text of the New Testament on the basis of the evidence, not on fancy theories largely developed by German theologians, none of whom believe in the authority of the scriptures, none of whom believe in the creeds of Christendom, all of whom deny the Trinity, the deity of Christ, the virgin birth, his bodily resurrection from the dead, and his second coming. If that is the kind of theology you want to tie your eternity to, rot's a rock, but it's not Christianity. We are dealing here tonight with the fact of the resurrection. Now, the professor has not answered my questions. He has not directed himself to the grammar, the language, or the context of passages. 
He has not followed any acceptable means of interpretational theology or interpretation of biblical theology and principles. And instead, we have had consistent evasion around the principal problem. This is the problem. The professor just doesn't believe that the New Testament documents are reliable. And he said so in his own words. A particular problem is that the stories of Jesus' life contained in the four Gospels are so contradictory in detail that it is difficult to make them agree with each other in a single story. Example, John describes a three-year ministry while Matthew, Mark, and Luke picture a ministry of one year. Indeed, is that so? Well, I suggest that the professor consult very carefully harmonies of the Gospels where he will find the Passovers of Jesus counted once a year and they total to three years. It is not one year, it's three years. The New Testament accounts are either reliable or they're nonsense. You either build your foundation on the rock, Jesus said, or on the sand. Now, some of you are probably sitting out there saying, Walter Martin seems a little agitated tonight about this. Yes, he is. And you want to know why? Because it's that kind of theology that almost sent me to hell in the Episcopal Church. The same kind of theology which is now riddling the Roman Catholic Church and which has already riddled Protestantism. Today you can be ordained in the ministry of major Protestant denominations, Baptist, Methodist, Lutheran, Episcopalian, Disciples of Christ, denying the Christian doctrine of the bodily resurrection of Christ, denying the vicarious atonement of the cross, not believing that the Bible is the authoritative word of God, denying the virgin birth of Christ, and in some instances questioning the Trinity or redefining it out of existence. You can be ordained today denying all those things because the church denominationally followed this kind of theology. It has led us to moral and spiritual bankruptcy. One thing that's missed here tonight, and I want to make it very strong and clear, the meaning of the resurrection is not just that Jesus Christ is alive, but that because he lives, you and I will live also. The meaning of the resurrection is that the power of the risen Christ can transform our lives by faith through grace alone. The power of the resurrection is the shedding forth of the Holy Spirit into our lives to enable us through gifts and through fruits to witness to a dying world that's lost and that's on its way to eternal judgment. Jesus preached more on hell than he ever did in heaven. But then Professor Miller doesn't believe in the historicity of Jesus, nor in the bodily resurrection of Jesus, nor that when Jesus says something, we must obey him. I'm sorry. Jesus said, if you love me, obey me. And he told us that his father taught him what he was teaching us. He said, I have not spoken on my own authority, the Father who sent me. He gave me a commandment, what I should say and what I should speak. Therefore, what I speak unto you is what the Father told me. The professor not only denies the authority of Christ, but of God the Father himself. Because Jesus said, my Father told me what to say. The Father said, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. That's going to be a tough job for somebody who didn't rise from the dead. It's an even tougher job for somebody that was never born. Preach the gospel to all creation. Baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Carry to his logical conclusion why believe anything in the New Testament. 
if the resurrection, which is the center of it all, is up for grabs, why I think we can kick out the virgin birth on the grounds that it was probably devolved from mythology. We can get rid of the Trinity by saying it came from pagan sources. We can do away with the atonement because it was just borrowed from the Jews. By the time we get finished, we will have the fatherhood of God, the brotherhood of man, and the neighborhood of Boston. No, thank you. I've been where liberals are, and I'm very glad to say that I'm a sinner saved by grace, and I know one thing, after many years of study and teaching, just as he has taught only as a liberal, I teach as an orthodox theologian. I know this. The faith of the church, as Karl Barth says, rests on the factuality of the resurrection. It is an event, says Barth, that can be reported reliably in the New York Times. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. He is risen. Dr. John Montgomery, the great Lutheran theologian, sums it up. May I quote him? Montgomery, in his book, Faith Founded, by Fact, Founded on Fact, says, Christian faith is not blind faith or credulity. It is grounded in fact. To talk about a real but unprovable resurrection is as foolish as to talk about a superhistorical or a spiritual resurrection. They are all cop-outs, sincere certainly but terribly harmful in an age longing to hear the meaningful affirmation. He is risen. Let's stop the fuddlement. Let's go beyond A.H. Ackley's hymn. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. And proclaim to a lost society... Jesus lives in our hearts because he first of all rose in the very history in which we are embedded. Close quote. He is risen. Come and see the place where the Lord lay. I thank you. While the two gentlemen who debated are still out here, I want to explain just three reasons why we did this tonight. The first reason, of course, was to think about resurrection. But we wanted to do more than that. It's easy on a weekend like this to take a lot of information and pack it into people's heads. And as Dr. Miller so appropriately, I think, uh, commented, it is very difficult to handle things even in a weekend, let alone in a short debate. We did this to think about resurrection, but for two other reasons. The first one is this. We want you to think about what you believe. And you've seen modeled tonight two men who are thinking very hard about what they believe. I challenge you to think about what you believe. Josh said earlier tonight, the object of our faith is so important. What do you think about it? And the second reason, of course, would be this, not only to think about our faith, but to talk about our faith in such a way as to defend it. To defend the faith that we think about. And we hope that through the modeling of two very capable men, thinking and defending the things that they believe, it will bolster you to do the same. Think and defend to have conviction. I hope that this has done just that in your life. Let's thank, thank two men again who have thought and defended what they believe.
Well, there you have it. That was a debate between Dr. Walter Martin and Dr. Dale Miller. That was a barn burner and it just fantastic stuff. God, we need more Walter Martins. More. All right. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know that. Uh, go visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Uh, when you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. You know the drill. Support us financially. We truly could use the help. All right, so what would you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me, my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. And he also rose bodily from the grave for your justification. Amen. <laughs> 